Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And welcome to Any Stupid Questions, the podcast where we ask experts the questions that reveal our ignorance about important subjects, but we hope you'll give us credit for asking anyway. This week to talk about the British Empire is historian and screenwriter Alex von Tunzelman. Hello. Hello. And asking the stupid questions with me are comedians Sadia Azmat and Benjamin Partridge. Hello. Hello. So, my first question to you, Alex, about the Empire is... Did the British build their empire? It seems a little bit arrogant. I mean, it happened for a number of reasons. It's always a very good historian start. But uh, it started really with the East India Company. It started with the idea of trade. Yeah. A lot of, at that time, a lot of European countries were starting East India Companies. There'd been these sort of new trade routes discovered to the East, and, you know, things like spices were becoming very, very popular. So initially, it was about trying to muscle in on some of that and make money. But then it just sort of kept expanding and expanding and expanding. And eventually, the British East India Company ended up with a control of a massive amount of the globe, really, um, of India, a lot of India. It ended up with its own army. So kind of an extraordinary corporation. So is that like the equivalent of if G4S just annexed China and just went, we're running this now? Like, is it that... There's no oversight from government whatsoever? Initially, no, not really. I mean, it had a licence from government, but, of course, it was basically allowed to do what it wanted. I mean, it just ran rampant until you had the Indian Mutiny, as it was then called, now often known as either the First War of Independence in India or the Indian Rebellion, 1857, which is when really that came to a kind of crashing halt because Indians rebelled against it. And at that stage, the British government took over. So it was just... It wasn't about spreading our democratic values or cultural, you know, we didn't want to do it. It was just about money. Yeah, I mean, we didn't have any democratic values. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was about 1600, so we didn't have really a lot of that going on yet. In Britain, certainly, you know, it wasn't a case that we had a representative democracy at that point. And I mean, also at that point, Britain was a quite a small, poor country and India was a gigantic empire under Akbar the Great. It was really a mismatch. You know, it wasn't a case of setting out to conquer India would have been a completely hilarious thing to try and do. So Britain's like a plucky underdog. At that stage, sure. I'm so, feeling much better about the empire. In- <laughs> <laughs> Give me time. In- India has like a massive problem with shame. So do you think Britain brought shame to India? <laughs> wow. Um, I'm not sure it's for me to judge, but I think there was... I mean, initially, Akbar and then other Indian monarchs allowed traders from Europe to come and trade. Um, They were really in a far superior position. So these were kind of guys that were coming in and trading and it it suited them just fine. 
really, it took, you know, from 1600 up to 1857. I mean, you know, that's kind of a long time. That's 250 years where that status began to change. And I mean, I think there are different opinions on that. I mean, some Indians would feel that there was a shame in being conquered. Some people talked about that. I mean, Gandhi actually talked about that, mm. um, about feeling that there'd been kind of, you know, that the British had somehow overpowered India and that was humiliating. But really, people, I mean, <laughs> there were a lot of Indians with a lot of different opinions. Yeah. And how did the empire end? And when did it end? Well, generally speaking, I would date the end to 1947, which was the independence of India and Pakistan, which was really the biggest kind of part of the empire. Although, of course, that date is debatable. There's lots of other parts you can put in. Of course, the North American colonies were lost much earlier and, you know, other parts went at different times. But really, when India and Pakistan went, that's when they sort of stopped using the term British Empire. At that stage, they tend to move to calling it the Commonwealth. That was going to be my next question. What is the Commonwealth and why is the Commonwealth? And are we the rulers of the Commonwealth? Very good questions. (laughs) Um, There is an extent to which it is a kind of successor organisation to the British Empire, but obviously it was supposed to be nicer than that. It was supposed to be on the basis of kind of cooperation. And the initial, the kind of early members of the Commonwealth were what were then called the White Dominions. So Australia, Canada, New Zealand, originally South Africa, you know, countries where really the, you know, the white population, the immigrant European population had displaced the local population and were then kind of in the position of power. Yeah. And then gradually over the course of, so that sort of began in, I think, 1931 and, and gradually more nations joined and actually even after independence nations like India and Pakistan did join. Can you join the Commonwealth even if you were never part of the British Empire? You can now, yes. It all seems like an empire by stealth. I mean, I think a lot of people do think that. I think there's a problem for the Commonwealth right now in figuring out what it is if yeah. it isn't that. And we've it, just had, I mean, the Queen has just said at the latest, we have this Chogham, as it's called, <laughs> the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, which is a very exciting little beano they have every two years to sort of discuss... Commonwealth. And this year, the Queen said that she would like Prince Charles to take over as head of the Commonwealth. And now that's not actually a hereditary position. So that wasn't going to happen automatically. It could have been anyone. Could have been any of us in this room. If you're all Commonwealth citizens here, could have been any of us. And she said it was her sincere wish that Prince Charles would take over. And then behind closed doors, they decided, yes, that was a very good idea. So that's going to happen. And I think that is in some ways quite disappointing because that really does imply that Britain's still very much at the head of it, which I'm not sure is really a very progressive move. It should be somebody from the country that got the most medals at the Commonwealth Games. That'd be good, yeah. (laughs) Was the Commonwealth Games invented just so we could win some medals without the USA, China and Russia (laughs) winning medals? I mean, pretty much, yeah. Yeah. I mean, also the Commonwealth has to have some sort of purpose and it's never really found one. Because it doesn't have a free trade, does it, or anything like that? No, no, no. I mean, it would be incredibly difficult to set up the Commonwealth as a free trade area. That would be like a mega project. No one's really talking about doing that. Do you think the uh, old British Council is... Stealth um, empiricism. And the World Service. (laughs) Yeah, and the World Service. (laughs) You know, the Irish Council aren't so bad. They've taken me on a speaking tour. (laughs) 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 Um, I mean, you know, I think there's... These are, like, the the British Council and the World Service, I wouldn't say are particularly sinister. I think those are kind of soft power agencies, and I think a lot of countries have that, you know, that it's sort of kind of putting yourself out there culturally. You're not forcing it down someone's neck. Nobody's forced to listen to that at gunpoint. It's not, you know, you you get the World Service on the radio. If you want it, you can tune in or not tune in. That's really up to you. I don't see really any problem with having that. I think it's actually a pretty good thing for Britain to be doing in many ways in that actually that seems like quite a good use of a budget to kind of, you know, spread news, especially in a lot of places where, you know, news isn't always particularly balanced. I think 
generally, for all its many faults, the BBC actually isn't too bad on that score. It's good to know that the BBC is not as bad as the British Empire. <laughs> so they'll be pleased to know that. <laughs> if I can get back onto the Commonwealth just briefly. So given the, the history of the Empire, why, why does the Commonwealth exist? The Commonwealth exists partly because there were... I mean, I think the Queen has always personally been quite invested in it. And there, ha- there was sort of after the empire kind of began to come apart, there were politicians who thought this would be a useful agency for continuing British power mm-hmm. and influence. And that didn't really come together. I mean, one of the reasons really that, you know, the EU was formed was kind of a response to the loss of European empires, was European nations understanding explicitly that they no longer wielded that kind of power in the world and therefore perhaps they needed to form a different sort of club, something rather more consensual than empire had been. The idea that now you could turn the Commonwealth into that is, I think, fraught with all sorts of difficulty. And one of the problems with that is that I don't think we've dealt with the history yet. I don't think we necessarily understand how some of those nations would feel about that. I I think there would have to be very long and complex negotiations on exactly what that was. Um, And I saw some, you know, pretty funny responses to that from some Commonwealth countries. I mean, there was one satirical piece in Australia that said, well, you know, if you want your Empire 2.0, you know, you want your kind of Kanzuk or whatever they call it, then we're going to need to headquarter it in, you know, Queenstown in New Zealand or Banff in Canada, you know, somewhere hard, not London, somewhere yeah. hard to get to. You know, how would you feel about that? And it's funny how actually you sort of say something like that and you realise quite quickly that it would have to be that. It would have to be not about Britain having primacy. Yeah, but that's what the whole thing about Prince Charles is... That's a bit rum, isn't it? Were they all just like, hang on a minute? I winced. Yeah, yeah. I'm not surprised. When you when you said that the Queen really likes the idea of the Commonwealth, could it just be that she's really into watching traditional African dance? <laughs> Maybe um, it's possible, but no, I mean, I, I think you know, I think she probably has had a, actually a, quite a genuine enthusiasm for it because I mean, she has been head of the Commonwealth for most of the time it's been there. The only other one was her. Well, dad. why wouldn't you like hundreds of com- countries saying you're in charge? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's pretty good, you know, but I don't think any politicians have ever really taken up that challenge either in Britain or in any of the Commonwealth countries to kind of invigorate that into But that, that's because of racism as well, isn't it? The idea that we'd have freedom of movement for people in the Commonwealth would mean that people from Uganda and Pakistan or whatever would be able to move to Britain, which well, is... Well, we did. What do you mean? We did have freedom of movement. I mean, in... But, yeah, but now we, we would... I mean, that's so far from the agenda now compared to... Sure. And I mean, this is one of the problems. I mean, basically, British citizenship was only formalised in 1948. That's the first time that there was a thing that was, you know, British, legally British citizenship. And there were two types. There was like citizen of the United Kingdom and its colonies, as they then were, or Commonwealth citizen. And Commonwealth citizen was also people of many newly independent countries that were part of the Commonwealth, India, Pakistan, Australia, New Zealand, etc, etc, etc. And so at that time in 1948, you had probably about 850 million people, all of whom had the right to live and work in the UK. I mean, compared to what, I mean, if we had that now, people would go absolutely bonkers, wouldn't they? Sure. But, you know, this is if you want to, if you want the Commonwealth to replace the EU, and of course that has been talked about by some Brexiteers, that's what they've got to face up to. And, um, you know, the Queen, where is she at with returning the um, £100 million Kohunu diamond to India? <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't think she's about to do it any time no. soon. I mean, yeah, the Kohunu is kind of, it's got this very tragic story that people come, you know, and it was kind of allegedly gifted to <laughs> Queen Victoria by this kind of Indian prince, although really the circumstances are a little shady of exactly how that happened. And there it sort of sits, you know, in the British crown jewels. And I think 
there's an extent to which actually, you know what? I mean, I think, I mean, what is it? It's basically a paperweight, isn't it? Really, what good is it? <laughs> I mean, but the problem is also figuring out who to give it back to. I think there are now five or six countries that claim it. Maybe no. she should break it up into six pieces and distribute it like the Maybe that thing us? Thanos did in yeah. that film. Isn't that what happens in <laughs> <laughs> Avengers and they put the things together and stuff happens? No spoilers. That sounds great. She should do that. Like she it. should definitely do that. Now, Jacob Rees-Mogg is really obsessed with the British Empire. Is it a small penis thing? <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen enough of him to comment on that. Yeah. But, I mean, he does seem to have a kind of general, really retro feel to everything he does. So I guess, you know, he probably is into it in the same way that he seems to be into wearing a top hat and being near vintage cars. And Not that touching sort of his thing. own children. No, exactly. The nanny. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think, you know, it's kind of a bit of an affectation. But the thing is, it is politically, it is quite powerful now. People do talk about it. And a lot of people think that kind of nostalgia for the empire, perhaps not dealing with the legacy of empire, is one of the reasons that we voted for Brexit in this country. I think what is difficult is some people think the empire was this amazing thing. And some people think it was a really awful thing. What is the absolute worst thing the empire did? Cool. <laughs> I love that question. <laughs> That's a great question. It's a big one. Well, you need, I mean, so as historians, we're kind of constantly trying to persuade people out of the is it good or bad question. Okay. Because it's so basic and you're talking about sort of 350 years and a huge amount of earth and really thumbs up, thumbs down doesn't really cover it. And sort of, you know, the whole balance sheet approach to empire, the kind of, you know, well, on one hand, massacres, on the other hand, railways, is <laughs> kind of very reductive because obviously how many railways make up for a massacre? You know, it's yeah. not, you can't... Four. no, more than that. <laughs> I mean, it depends on the massacre. But it's very hard to balance those things against each other. I mean, actually kind of impossible and yeah. kind of dumb, actually. So as historians are constantly trying to say to people, OK, try and wean yourself off the idea that, like, your feelings about it, whether you feel pride or shame, whether you think it's good or bad, those are your feelings yeah. and that's, you can have those, but when we're talking about the history of it, that's kind of not how we're approaching it. We're trying to understand it more in its own terms. And so when you're kind of trying to say what's the worst thing, my serious historian answer is, like, we don't really make league tables of the worst thing. Okay. But if you want to know the stuff that had, say, the biggest death toll, it would certainly be the Indian famines. How many people died in the famines? I mean, in some of them, millions. Mm. The one that gets talked about more these days is the Bengal famine of 1943, and it's generally thought about three million people possibly died in that famine. And for people who don't know, what were the circumstances of this? Well... Gets very complicated oh, to get okay. into, but giving you a kind of thumbnail, sort of like a brief overview, which is going to, you know, ha it has a lot more complexity than this. But the reason that people blame, blame the British is that <laughs> famines are kind of always caused, actually, by mismanagement of resources. They're not caused by a drought or mm -hmm. anything like this. It's actually about the allocation of resources. And in the case of the Bengal famine, that was happening during World War Two. First of all, there was a massive screw-up in the handling of the markets by the local government in Bengal and by, you know, and, and sort of at, at that sort of market level and then at the governmental level there. But then that was really compounded by the imperial government in London refusing to release food stocks which were available to Indians in case they were needed for white British people back in the UK. And Winston Churchill's quite implicated in that, so it tends to get a fair amount of attention because some people feel like he's quite personally responsible for that, although really there's enough blame to go around a lot of different people on the Bengal famine. But, you know, really millions of people died at that point because 
food that was there was not released to them, not because food wasn't available. And also, um, you know, the opium kind of dealings, they're kind of not really publicised as much as the other bad stuff. And why is China still upset with us about that? Can't they let it go? Well, (laughs) you'll have to ask them. I think the opium wars were pretty bad, actually. You know, kind of forcing drug habits on an entire nation is, you know, wasn't probably morally the best behaviour. But as I say, we can't try and stay away from the whole good and bad thing and look at how it happened, you know, in its own terms and look at it on the day. And I mean, I think you can sort of definitely see why the Chinese are upset about it. And I think also they feel that, you know, there is a kind of, you know, you brought up before a question of shame and pride and things like that. And although... As I say, those feelings aren't really what historians deal with. There is a sense, I think, in which China still feels quite humiliated by what happened in the Opium Wars. Um, And do we care or is there anything we can do to make it up to them or not really? Is it just going to be the way it is? I think you'd have to ask them what they wanted to make up (laughs) for it. But it's uh, there's not much we can do today because it's happened. There is something about how we haven't dealt with it as a country, isn't there? Because if you compare us to, for example, Germany, you know, their empire ended in quite spectacular fashion and they sort of had to get to grips with it and Germany's always struck me as a country that has done this incredible job of kind of dealing with what happened being quite good at recognizing it and sort of moving on from it and all this kind of stuff whereas because we sort of slowly let the empire sort of run to a halt and then we sort of never had to go ah well that's over so it just kind of feels like this festering boil that one day might come to the surface if you know what I mean and is, is there some truth in that? Or I'm doing that thing you get in um, talks. More of a comment than a question. <laughs> uh, which is probably the worst thing you can ever do. But is it Perhaps a... that's why Brexit happened, like, for example. Well, uh, because he couldn't ask a question. Because he couldn't <laughs> ask a question. No, but I mean, is this something that will sort of bubble up? Is it almost like the Me Too thing? It's something that feels like it's been under the covers for so long and then suddenly something will happen and we'll all go, oh, my God, the British Empire was awful. We need to deal with it. I do think that there's a massive extent to which we don't deal with the history, actually, in this country. And I think your comparison with Germany is actually very interesting because Germany does much better than we do. Germany's kind of the gold standard for how you deal with your terrible history um, on the basis that, you know, most countries have something pretty unpleasant up there. And let's face it, Germany has a lot that's mm-hmm. unpleasant. And they've been very proactive about confronting that, about the way it's taught in schools and so on. I mean, you know, I think it's kind of a problem that in schools, kids don't really learn about the British Empire. The only thing they tend to learn is the ending of slavery, which, of course, is presented as, hey, we ended it, you know, which <laughs> is so nice and convenient. Not the bit where we did it for ages before and, you know... Yeah, we started And as well. started yeah. that, yeah, trade also. And, you know, I mean, it, it becomes sort of really part of a glorious story and I mean this again is the the problem for history is like when it becomes about your kind of national pride about your sort of propaganda then it's getting away from history because that's getting in your way of of seeing what really the the true complexity. Um, I know you didn't want to talk about good or bad but the British Empire did do some good things though right? I mean the problem with doing that is that it becomes okay so like let me give you an example now this is going to be massive moment of Godwin's law because of course the minute you mention it, it comes up but when people say well, the thing about the Nazis is they made the trains run on time. Mm-hmm. Now, you understand that that is quite an offensive thing to say, right? Because yeah. nobody would think that balanced out what the Nazis did. Yeah. And that that would be a way really of minimising it. You know, that's almost a joke, isn't it? That people say it to kind of undercut, yeah. you know, it would, because nobody would seriously make that contention. Um, and yet we still seem to, whenever this comes up, people say things like, but we did give them the railways. You know, as if that's a thumbs up. And also, we didn't. If you want to look into the history of the way the Indian railways were built, the Indians paid for them and built them. So, you know, there's a sort of Do mythology. Do you think that the empire paved the way for hipsters? 
In what sense? Well, they now have like, you know, yoga and like really long beards. I think that's all from India. It is true. And the Beatles did go to India and, mm. you know, get a bit spiritual with all or of Harry that. Or Harry Krishna and stuff. I mean, well, cultural exchange, go do that, isn't it? <laughs> but it's interesting what you say about making the comparison to Nazism is, like you say, a, someone from Germany knows they have been taught that this was a terrible thing that happened in our history and so you would never make that comparison. But you see people post-Brexit, like your Jacob Rees-Mogg's, who are so like, we should get back to having, you know, the empire was amazing. You're like, oh, maybe it wasn't that bad after all then. So it's really... <laughs> Because there's no education about it in this country, it is really hard to really form an opinion on it. I mean, obviously, we know the terrible things that happened, but you are always told, but, you know, it, it wasn't that bad. Look, on we, the plus side. On the plus side. <laughs> sure, you know, cricket, English language. Um, and people always say the rule of law, although really that's heavily disputable, mm. in that the rule of law often wasn't very functional in many parts of the empire a lot of the time. But this is exactly why the balance sheet approach is not really very helpful okay. and why I think a lot of historians would really prefer to kind of look at it in terms of sort of close-up topics. So, for instance, with the Bengal famine, you want, you know, of course, like, I think everyone kind of thinks starving people is bad, of obviously, course, at yeah. some level. But it's not really about establishing that. It's, it's talking about, OK, why did it happen? What was the motivation? You know, what were people kind of doing in that? Who's responsible? Those are really good questions, yeah. which, you know, you can get into around specific topics. Could we have had the British Empire but been nicer? Could we have been a benevolent empire that didn't create famines and all that kind of stuff? Or is the idea of just being an empire in the first place inherently a kind of negative thing? I think, generally speaking, empire is pretty closely linked to violence. I don't think there ever has been really a benevolent empire. I mean, you might you might point to the Commonwealth and say, you know, that's kind of OK, but also the Commonwealth, what is it, though? As we've established, we yeah, don't even mainly, know what it doesn't gymnastics, do gymnastics, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, so I think you can have gymnastics. I think that's OK. <laughs> but I think if you're going to take over and rule another country, there has to be violence to sustain that system. Playing devil's advocate, maybe, or say, I don't think I believe this, but I'm interested in it as an idea. Because you mentioned before that before India was part of the British Empire, it was part of another empire. And that kind of gets me to thinking... Until fairly recently, the world was always covered in different empires, right? And it, it's it's almost, if you took the long view of human history, the kind of natural state of human beings living on the earth until, what, earlier last century or halfway through last century. And so well, we, it was just par for the course, wasn't it? To set up an empire, that was what you did and that was quite natural and somehow intrinsic to what it was to be a human and to be part of a society? I mean, even now they still exist. You know, the fact that you may not, they may not be called an empire doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't. And there's a lot of discussion about whether there's an American empire, for instance, which some people prefer American hegemony as a term, but effectively, you know, there's still... At some stages, there are wars, there's control of territory, there's all sorts of the things you see in an empire. So, yeah, they do continue throughout history. Um, they kind of go the whole pretty much the whole way through history as we know it. But again, this is why, you know, saying, I mean, empires are bad. Well, they also just exist. I mean, it's just getting to the kind of, they definitely do always exist. So trying to understand them, you sort of, that's why you kind of need to get beyond just going, okay, bad. So we, we'll all put our thumbs down, but then we need to understand it, you know, and understand why that happens. 
Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I want to know about some of the people in the empire who felt bad about it. Do you know any stories about them? Sure. Did they die? <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's well, there's loads of people that felt bad about it through the whole thing, and I think this is another thing that we sort that comes up as a myth the whole time is the idea that in the past everybody supported the empire, and you know it was normal to be racist back then. You hear people say this sort of thing a lot. Yeah. Well, it wasn't first of all because obviously most people in the British Empire were not white, so were they going to be racist? Not necessarily. They probably were Indian, but you know those people had all sorts of different opinions. And yeah, I mean, you all the way through, you find people criticising the empire and you find subject peoples like Indians criticising it, but you also find British people criticising it. You find that there's a great deal of criticism from all sorts of angles throughout. And some of those have sort you know, were just able to make their criticisms and others of them, I mean, in India, there was a constant really state of rebellion against the Brits. But yeah, of course, I mean, people were hanged people were you know killed for rebelling i mean particularly around the time of the great rebellion of 1857-58 i mean the british went in for some really revolting punishments particularly blowing people out of cannon for rebelling and quite often these people were innocent as well i mean there were no real trials or very much show trials and what happened then is that the rebel would be strapped kind of crossways across a cannon um, and a bullet just blown through their entire body you know a cannonball blown through them they'd be blown to pieces and the head would bounce off and that was actually done so that neither Hindus or Muslims could perform proper funeral rites wow. so it was done to desecrate the bodies so certainly uh, people did rebel and certainly they were met with violence when they did. Did you get the opposite which was what, what are the instances of people living in India for example who were pro-empire despite being a subject person? People certainly were. I mean, some people were. And actually, even if you look at Gandhi, he starts out, if you look at his early years in South Africa, where he first sort of began a kind of struggle, and then in India, he actually, until kind of really after the First World War, he had a very strong feeling that he was part of the British Empire and what he wanted was to be treated as an equal subject. That was the important thing. So, you know, he was actually 
quite pro. He said lots of things that were very pro British Empire. And he actually, although he didn't believe in fighting in a war, he, for instance, was a stretcher bearer in the Boer War because he believed that actually, if he wanted the rights of an imperial citizen, that he also had to take the responsibilities. So he sort of performed all of that. And really, it was when it became incredibly obvious that Britain simply wasn't going to listen and wasn't going to give him rights. And that was you know, well after the Amritsar massacre of 1919 is when he finally turned to saying he wanted, you know, Purna Swaraj, complete independence, um, political and spiritual independence from Britain. Were there any outspoken opponents of empire within the British parliamentary system, for example? Certainly, yeah. I mean, there were lots of critics of it from different angles. I mean, there were some people who, you know, even in Victorian times, you can find voices of MPs who are kind of anti-imperialist. And sometimes that's because... For moral reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other times, that's actually because they don't believe in overreach. They think it's going too far. They can't afford it. It's too expensive. What the hell are we doing? You know, that this is kind of crazy behaviour. And so there were always different opinions. Even if you just look at the opinions of rich white men, which I'm afraid we do slightly have a tendency to do, you find opposition to empire at every level. Were there people in Britain when... About, I was about to say granting independence. I don't know if we, if we granted people their independence or whether they just fought for it and we said, OK, here you go. But when that all happened in the 50s and 60s, were people in Britain happy about it? Or were there some people who were going, what are we doing? We're giving away this huge empire. Well, there were mixed feelings. There were some people who felt it was really awful. And particularly when, you know, when you're looking at India, I mean, Winston Churchill was hugely opposed to independence. And, you know, then sort of actually became a great supporter of Pakistan, which people today are always quite surprised to hear, but that's partly because he thought that that would, you know, Pakistan was more naturally democratic and more likely to remain a sort of friendly state to Britain and could be kind of a buffer state against India, which, of course, you know, at that stage they thought might become socialist, might align with the Soviet Union and so on. So some people were very resistant, but actually... I think by that stage, you know, by the time you got to that time, there were also a lot of people who were quite keen to see it go. I think, you know, the idea that everybody was flag-waving pro-empire was never really true. And I think if you look at, you know, things like the empire exhibitions in the 20s and 30s that are often taken to be a sign that the empire was really popular, well, actually, there's another way to look at that, which is that they constantly had to shore up support for it. And actually, in many ways, it was quite unpopular. If you think after the war... You know, the last thing a lot of British people wanted was for their sons and husbands to be sent off for another five years to fight keeping India under control, for instance, you know, when, frankly, it was pretty obvious the Indians didn't want them there. So many people were quite glad to be shot of it, as some of them put it. If Churchill had won the election in '45, do you think India would have gained independence? Oh, that's a quite a fun counterfactual, that one. I think it would have been very, very hard to hold on to it for much longer after that, but it would have been a pretty different story because the kind of crucial years for what eventually happened in Indian independence were 46 and 47, really. Like, you know, it was decided quite fast at that point. And, of course, if Churchill had been in power, that could all have played out in a very, very different way indeed. On the other hand, I would have said beyond Churchill and the Conservative Party, actually Churchill was kind of in a minority and a lot of the Conservative Party by that stage were pretty clear on the fact that India had to have independence. So whether he would have had the support of his own party would have been a bit tricky. That doesn't seem to matter these days, support of your own party. Um, I imagine I know the answer to this, but maybe you can tell us. How central is racism to the empire? In the British Empire, racism is absolutely integral to the empire because that's actually coded into it um, in terms of laws, in terms of different status of citizens and so on. Were other empires similarly 
are they all as racist as each other? Because you say the British one was particularly racist. Does that mean there were some that were less racist? They all have differences and are set up differently. I think most of the modern empires you would look at are pretty racist. Right. So with, like, India, there's, like, obviously the caste system and the untouchables. So that I think that still exists, doesn't it? And so... Do we know how that can be erased or we just don't care now? We just created the damage and then it's kind of for them to love themselves somehow? Yeah, and there is an extent to which, I mean, with something like the caste system, you know, that Britain really codified that and actually enshrined it in law. I mean, you know, that was kind of in the 1870s, we passed law, you know, census laws that required everybody's, you know, caste and language and so on to be codified. And it that determined, for instance, if you could join certain army regiments, it encoded these things in law, which previously had probably been rather more flexible. Mm. As in terms of whether we have ever done anything to solve that, the answer would be no. Um, the caste system was banned under the independent Indian constitution, thanks to um, an incredible man called B. R. Ambedkar, who was a leader of you know what were called the untouchables. Now you'd say Dalit people, um, so you know Hindus without a caste, although he converted to Buddhism, and he made sure that was in the Indian constitution, which he you know wrote. But unfortunately it's very, very hard to get rid of systems like that. And you do find that to today, caste violence absolutely does continue. In terms of whether Britain could do anything about it now, probably not, because we, you know, I mean, there's really no... I think a lot of Indians would react very negatively to Britain saying, you know, by the way, chaps, I think you should probably stop this. <laughs> the more I hear about this empire, the less I like it. <laughs> um, in terms of, like, current empires, you alluded to the fact that there are some empires that we might kind of not to deem empires? Do you mean Google? Well, I mean, there is an extent to which those um, companies control enormous Global, amounts of data. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're kind of in a new world now because data is now so incredibly important. Yeah. So, I mean, in the past, empires, you know, were often defined by their control of territory, physical territory. And that's why a lot of people said, oh, but you see America isn't an empire because it doesn't control territory, although actually that's wrong. It did at various points. But that tends to be something that people look at. And of course, Really, you know, Google and so on don't control territory. But then I, th I wonder whether that definition is just outdated because now, yeah, I mean, when you're looking at the importance of data and when you're looking at some of these huge kind of companies swinging elections and so on, there's an exercise of power there that's very interesting and that perhaps we need to understand digital empires better. Why did it end? Well, <laughs> how long a podcast have you got? From what, what I know is that it seemed to end quite quickly and quite... This might be wrong, but seemingly we just kind of went very quickly. There was, the, what was it, the winds of change thing where suddenly all the African countries became independent within about five years of each other. And it seemed to happen sort of very quickly. And we went from being uh, this huge empire to suddenly not existing at all, almost overnight. Apart how, how, from Hong Kong. Apart from Hong Kong <laughs> and, and Wales, well, which continues Hong. to be uh, <laughs> the, um, of the English empire. But yeah, how come it happened so quickly? Partly because after World War II, Britain had run out of money was quite a big motivating But wasn't factor. it making us money? Isn't that the whole reason we were doing it? Not really by that point, no, right. because policing, it was getting more and more difficult because quite a lot of people were getting quite uppity about the fact that the British were still in charge. Fair I mean, enough. especially as, you know, a lot of them had gone off and fought in the war and had been sort of, you know, told that they were part of this thing and then it's like, well, hold on, but why aren't we in charge if we're part of it? What's This is a bit wrong. Mm. So, I mean, there was a lot of, and certainly, I mean, in India, really, it was virtually in a state of civil war, really, by that point. And... The Americans were leaning on the Brits to get rid of it. The Brits had no money left, had to take huge loans from the Americans. And that kind of sped it up greatly. I mean, we, you know, it's very helpful to everybody when you see films like the film of Gandhi, for instance, you know, which suggests that Gandhi spent a lot of time saying, 
nice, sensible, peaceful, persuasive things. And eventually the British sort of went, yeah, fair point. And it's very dignified and everybody agrees. But really it wasn't like that. It was far more chaotic. As why why did the Americans like put pressure on the Brits to end it? Were they jealous? Partly, <laughs> yeah, actually. Well, no, it was partially a feeling that, I mean, of course, the Americans had also been part of the British Empire, remember, and had quite strong feelings against colonialism in that respect. Apart from in Hawaii. Yeah, apart from when they did it, obviously. But everybody's a bit like that. Yeah. My colonialism's all right. It's yours. It's yours that's the problem. But yeah, I mean, so it was partially that. It was partly a feeling that empires were just wrong, even though they sort of had one. It was also quite pragmatic as well in that America wanted relationships with some of these countries and Britain was in the way. And um, was a disadvantage to the empire that there was just one language, like it was just English? Is that a dumb question? No, it's not a dumb question. (laughs) No, um, it was... I mean, in a way, the English language was kind of a useful thing for the empire because obviously it allowed communication to a much greater extent. And because, you know, particularly because the United States has now really turned English into probably more of a global language than the British Empire ever did through film and TV um, and music and so on, which, you know, really have kind of broken down incredible boundaries. You know, the English language is now quite an advantage, but, um, you know, that's, that's also evolved in lots of different ways and now there are different forms of the English language in a lot of these places. Isn't it super nuts how this whole thing just kicked off because we really like spice? It is a bit. It sort of got out of control. Like, how bland was our food to begin with yeah. that we were eight, we thought we'd enslave the entire world just so we could have black pepper or whatever it is we were getting? We're fixated with turmeric. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess it was about some other stuff than that. But, you know, it's more about, you know, spice was an initial thing, but also even in the Middle Ages, spice was coming, of course, you know, even before the British Empire. It was more about money. Do people still now, like, who are pro-Empire, think that India's, like, squandered its independence or it would be better off still under our rule? Well, you hear that about Africa all the time, like, mm. racist people sort of go, <laughs> well, look, look at Zimbabwe, it's a complete mess, and it wouldn't Mugabe be like that. Stuff, exactly, yeah. yeah, and a lot of African countries are having a hard time, but they say, oh, well, if we were still there, it would be... Being sure. run beautifully. These, these are generally people who don't know very much yes. about how <laughs> empire worked. Because, you know, again, as I say, if you look at the history of empire, if you look at did it actually work, because there's this kind of delusion that it was all brilliant, you know, and then after we left it all, you know, went pretty wrong. I think that really ignores the long history of it going pretty wrong under British rule in most of those places. See, you're Welsh. I am. Do you wish well, Wales could become independent from England? Because... Uh, being well, England and Wales is sort of why you d- don't get all the lovely benefits that Scotland does, like yeah, the free well, university and work business, fr- no prescription charges. No, we don't have prescription charges in Wales. Do you have pres- what? Nope, only England's got them. Because <laughs> <laughs> you love paying for drugs. <laughs> no, we got free prescription charges. Um, I've, I've got plenty of nationalist friends who would like to become independents and, and see Wales as being part of an English empire, which started, you know, in 1100 and something. Yeah. And I think that's true. However, personally, I feel like I feel like it's been so long that now we are part of the empire, and I like it. Like you know, that's the sort of thing where people I mean, say it's a very different sort of empire. It's not though. Do you not? Well, Wales well, is isn't enslaved. Well, it was. But people from Wales are treated the same as they are now. Yeah. But they weren't in fifteen hundred when their language was suppressed, and they were literally beaten for speaking their own language. So you think of it just because it's trundled on for so long? It's because, yeah, it's just because it's so long ago. 
But I feel like if... Okay, I'm going to say something really We dodgy. can cut it out, it's fine. I don't know. I imagine there are Native Americans yeah. who kind of go, okay, I'm American now. Yeah. Well, I'm part of the USA. I might have some beefs. <laughs> yeah. But ultimately, I'm an American. I'm going to go and live in Chicago and eat pizza and, and get involved with the American project. And it's that thing of, like, if you are an empire for long enough, yeah. people don't call it an empire anymore and it's just part of the country. Like, Spain yeah. was is essentially the Castilian Empire, right? There are parts of Spain, like... But they're uh, having problems because of that. But exactly. Almost every European country is made, made from the hegemony of one part of that country becoming the whole country. So yeah. in France, it was lots of little countries and then whichever one of it was the most powerful sort of took over. So I don't know. Lots of countries are empires, are they? Or am I being really idiotic? I mean, yes, there is a way in which that's the kind of dynamic that started it, of course. Um, and I do think some, you know, particularly Scots, but also... Northern Irish people and Welsh people do feel that they're kind of being dominated by England because England kind of, you know, sits there and kind of sucks up all the attention and money and so on. Um, historically, it's obviously been a much more complicated story. I mean, you know, in Scotland, for instance, been extremely active in the creation of the British Empire. <laughs> many Scots very prominent in it. Um, and they signed up for the United Kingdom. Which is right. I mean, yeah, which is a different state of affairs. Mm. I mean, that's a voluntary union, which is, of course, different at that stage. I mean, you know... Um, as you say, not necessarily earlier. I mean, there were wars and so on with all of these places. Um, you know, th but that's exactly why I say these things are quite complicated and just going for good or bad is a bit mm. unhelpful because the, the pictures are often quite complicated. Um, you know, you've actually just expressed how that's the case with Wales, for instance. Well, I'm a happy, I'm a happy citizen of the United Kingdom, which I believe to be an empire, which I'm happy with. <laughs> so if you think history repeats itself... Do you think this is going to happen again, the empire? I don't think history ever completely repeats itself, mm. but I do think empires will continue to happen, sure, because it's very hard to to stop them. I mean, you know, you said earlier that there's kind of, in human history, these keep happening, and it's absolutely true. And I think if you look at some of the empires beginning now, for instance, China is a country that I would say is definitely creating an empire. You know, it's created an awful lot of trade deals in Africa with African countries. It's creating those also around various other countries in Asia. It's building infrastructure in those countries. It's, you know, so it hasn't taken them over. But of course, that's exactly what the British did in many places. Like in a lot of India, Britain didn't necessarily fight a war and take somewhere over. They just made little trade deals with the prince of that particular state. And then they were able to build their infrastructure and do this. So China's actually following something very like the British imperial model right now. Um, so, you know, we may well come to a point in the future where we say that's an empire. Um, India is beginning to follow suit like that as well. And so, you know, I think, of course, it will keep happening because people still like money mm -hmm. um, and they have a hunger for that. Um, I wouldn't say the UK is an empire, I'm afraid. I'll contradict <laughs> you on that. I think it's a voluntary union, which is quite a different thing. Um, it's not a voluntary union. Not any, oh. It's based on conquest. A long time ago. Yeah, but... But the modern union is voluntary. You're arguing with our historian. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's voluntary. Well, um, we'll see. We've got time for uh, one more question each, one quick question. Ooh. So, Ben, do you have something? Or, um, Sadi, if you've got there something? There was a colour code, wasn't it? Red. What was that all about? Oh, on the maps? Yeah. Yeah, where they used to do it sort of pink or red. Um, <laughs> I think it was just the most visible colour. Okay. Um, so what, was the, what did the red signify? What we'd taken over? Our bits. Yeah, yeah. Mm. This is us. Okay. Yeah. You can see, like, the biggest extent of the empire was around 1921. So those are the maps where 
you know, the sun never sets and all that. <laughs> Is that why it was a world war? Because basically we owned most of the world. And so... So we... you're all in, guys. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, of course, because, you know, I mean, you see this in both World War One and World War Two. of course, lots of soldiers were called up to fight from places like, you know, my ancestors in New Zealand and India and all of these other places, you know, a lot of whom really had no reason to, but <laughs> off they went. Ben, do you have anything? Is it true that the sun never set on the British Empire? When it was at its maximum extent, it probably was pretty true, yeah. I'm just wondering whether it would have had a bit of a gap over the Pacific, but even there... Maybe there if that might was a been, boat. Yeah, there might have been a boat, yeah. Um, my final question is, we're leaving the EU, we've Brexited, which means that Britain is very vulnerable. Who are we going to be conquered by? Someone's definitely <laughs> going to have a pop. Someone's definitely going to have a pop, right? Although we haven't and got that we much good stuff. It. I've you got my eyes stuff. on Belgium. Do you reckon think Belgium? Belgium? We've yeah. got uh, jam. Did you not see the That's thing true. about jam? You're right, and we we've do. And we've got some fish. Some fish. <laughs> Just some of them. Well, Belgium's been pretty bad with the whole conquest in the past. If you look at the Congo, that ain't great. So, you know, let's hope it's not them. I hope it's the Vikings again. That'd be good. I'd be on board with that. I Heck could live yeah. with that. Yeah. I think we should let's let's ask let's them. Let's just open up open up ourselves to Norway. Excellent. I think we should. Have you got anything you'd like to plug? Benjamin, Ben. I make ben. a podcast. It's a comedy podcast called the Beef and Dairy Network Podcast. It's a very good podcast. Look it up and uh, enjoy it. Sadie, have you got anything you'd like to plug? I also have a podcast, No Country for Young Women. So it's on the BBC, so please look it up. Fantastic. And Alex, have you got anything you'd like to plug? I mean, you know, if you want to know more about the empire, I've written three books on it, which people are welcome to buy. The most recently is called Blood and Sand. It's about the Suez Crisis and the Hungarian Rebellion of 1956. Thank you very much, uh, and thanks for listening. to my guests, Alex von Tundelman, Benjamin Partridge and Sadia Asmut. Any Stupid Questions was written and presented by me, Danielle Ward, and produced by Ed Morris for the internet. If you enjoyed it, feel free to follow us on Twitter at AnyStupidQs, where we put out extra bits and ask for audience questions. And please feel free to rate, review and subscribe to us wherever you got this from. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.